Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Grant Geisman. Grant Geisman's music smooth jazz. It's almost a misnomer to him, and it really doesn't capture what his music is all about. Quite simply, the formerly trained jazz guitarist is a hybrid musician, having trained on classical jazz standards and improvisation with some serious jazz cats in the San Jose, California area over the years. As a guitarist with a diverse appetite for new musical experiences, he has also found a successful niche, playing on several TV show scores and themes such as Monk, Dawson's Creek, Boy Meets World, Touched by an Angel, Lizzie McGuire, and other TV shows. Most recently, he collaborated to compose the theme and incidental music for the CBS TV sitcom Two and a Half Men, for which he was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award. As a session player, you'll find his guitar work on projects for Quincy Jones, Kiko Matsui, David Benoit, and Diane Shure. But Geisman's window of opportunity opened in 1976, when flugelhornist Chuck Mangione added him to a short tour in California and the Pacific Northwest. The rest is history, as Geisman became part of Mangione's band and became famous for his sizzling solo on the song Feels So Good. Finally, as a solo artist with 11 projects under his belt, you'll find his new jazz project, Say That, addicting. Inside Music Cast is pleased to welcome Grant Geisman. Hey, Grant, thanks for joining us today. You bet. This is very cool. Very good. Hey, Grant, first of all, we'd like to definitely congratulate you on the completion of your new solo project that's called Say That! Exclamation. So I have to sort of shout it out. Say that! You know? <laughs> there you go. That's right. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> is this number 13 or 14 now of your solo projects? Now? I think it's 13. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Lucky, have, lucky 13. Lucky 13, I know. Lucky 13, <laughs> yeah. Well, me and Rick have been sort of immersing ourselves uh, in this album over the past several days, and we do have to say we agree that uh, this is some of the best work we've uh, we've heard and uh, um, sort of a return to your jazz roots in a way, right? Very much so, deliberately so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. explain that a little bit as to maybe... uh, um, Going back a little bit, what was... uh, How'd you end up at that uh, that feel? Well, I mean, if you want to go all the way back, the first solo album I did was, you know, I hate to say when this was, but 1978. Right. um, And it was a very sort of mainstream jazz album called Good Stuff on Concord Jazz Records. And, you know, people always kind of like that over the years. But at the time, I was um, on the road and recording with Chuck Mangione, you know, mm-hmm. uh, during those years. Right. And I was writing stuff that was, I guess at that time, they would kind of call it fusion or, you know, whatever. It was sure. mm-hmm. kind of a combination of jazzy elements and, you know, with more funky kind of beats and stuff. And so the, the next albums I did after that kind of went, went more that direction because, honestly, that's what I was kind of interested in pursuing. Right. But, you know, and then I was kind of involved in the whole beginning of what they now call the wave format, which used to be called the Quiet Storm at one point, and went through various permutations. And it was kind of a fun thing, especially at the beginning, because it was literally wide open in terms of uh, musical styles Mm -hmm. and the the kind of um, influences you could bring. You know, you could could play jazz-oriented stuff. And it would it would get played. You could bring in acoustic elements, you know, play stuff on acoustic guitar. You could play world music. You know, it was it was an interesting place to be. And it was like, ah, oh, this will be fun. Mm-hmm. Sadly, though, as the years have gone on, that format um, 
has gotten narrower and narrower in mm-hmm. terms of what they will play. Right. To where, you know, a few years ago or, or some years ago, it was finally like, you know, this is literally Muzak now. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, then I started thinking about, well, what is it that I really want to do? And um, I actually kind of put any recording on hold for, it was, if you know, a few years, some years. Because hmm. it was like, I don't know what I want to do, you know, because... Uh, you know, recording first of all is quite an honor. You know, it's to to be able to go in and you know write music and then get it recorded and hopefully yeah. people like it and maybe they'll hear it on the radio or something like that. First of all, it's an honor, so I don't take that lightly. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to put out something that I don't like. Right. So I, I had to do a little soul searching and and I realized a lot of the stuff I really love was some of the first music I studied as a young guitar player. Uh, you know, people like Wes Montgomery sure. and, and Horace Silver and Jimmy Smith and, you know, this great kind of mid-60s, in a way, uh, you know, vibe, Cannonball Adderley, stuff yeah, like right. that. And it was like, it would be so cool to try to, you know, put an album together that would kind of meld those things in some way. And that's what I set out to do with Say That. Yeah. So that's a long story, roundabout way of, of how I finally arrived, you know. At, mm-hmm. at the music on Say That. Sure, but sure. I, I have to say, it's, it's, I'm, it's probably the thing I'm most proud of. What you were saying there a moment ago, when you got to that point to where you weren't sure where you were headed with your career and, and what, what angle you wanted to go, what were you doing at that time period to keep you busy and, and uh, keep you working as a musician? Oh, well, I mean, I do a lot of things. I kind of wear a lot of hats, yeah. <clears throat> truthfully. Um, I've done a lot of session work over the years. And um, Actually, my day gig, the last uh, five seasons, very, I'm very lucky. I co-write the music for a TV show called Two and a Half Men. Right, right. You know, starring Charlie Sheen. Uh-huh. So, you know, in a way, that gave me a little um, comfort zone where I could kind of step back and creatively just, you know, take a little breather and think, well, creatively now, what do I want to do for me? Mm-hmm. Right. So, because I kind of had my day gig, you know. Exactly. W- with uh, the TV show. And it's it's been a great experience and the the writers there are amazing the producers are so cool the cast is great so mm-hmm. very, very yeah. lucky lucky to be there yeah well we'll sort of expand on on uh, two and a half men and some other things that you've been doing but generally speaking you know if, if anyone really keeps in step with your career they would know that you know like, like you said you're not not only a jazz uh, uh solo artist uh you know very seasoned uh, studio session player and conductor and but you've some way found yourself into this uh composing music for for the entertainment industry hbo specials nickelodeon programs uh tv sitcoms like uh two and a half men and and uh uh, but my question is, at what point did you actually discover that you could branch out to those type of projects that were sort of out of the circle of jazz genre or what you do? When did you expand into knowing, hey, I can compose uh, or I need to compose for, for entertainment? It's kind of like I've always been a little schizophrenic because, <laughs> <laughs> because first of all, I grew up in the 60s when um, – it was a, musically, it was a very creative time and, again, a very open time. Like, you know, the Beatles were bringing in string quartets and, yeah. and uh, you know, whoever was bringing in raga influences and, and classical music influences. So to me, growing up, it's like, well, okay, that's what you're supposed to do. You know, I, and that's why I struggle with, you know, people trying to put you in a box. Well, mm-hmm. you're this or you're that. And then the other thing is the reason I began playing the guitar at all is because of, you know, bands like the Beatles and... And um, I yeah. wanted to get a guitar and go out in the garage with my friends and try to learn how to play stuff. And, sure. You know, so I kind of started, truthfully, with kind of more on the rock side of things. And then 
I kind of discovered I liked to improvise, and I had some teachers that steered me more into the jazz direction mm-hmm. when I was a kid. But I would play in little jazz ensembles I organized or big bands at, at school. Mm-hmm. And then I'd also have my rock bands playing out in the garage and then, you know, playing, uh, you know, teen club dances or something <laughs> on the weekends. So in my mind, the, the two things were never separate. Yeah. Right. You know? So, um, and I, I think as a musician, it it's, was very helpful because the ability to play all kinds of different things is important. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think so. You know, I, I, I could name several purists, if you want to call them that, that, would, that wouldn't ever uh, either have the guts or just don't want to, by choice, delve out of their musical genres and, and not attempt uh, other type of, quote-unquote, commercialized type of music, you know, but because they think that it's selling out or doing something else. But it, it's, it's all based on the individual, isn't it? Well, yeah, obviously, yeah. Uh-huh. you know. Yeah. And, and I don't... Um, you know, if somebody wants to be a purist, I, I'm I'm down with that too. Sure. You know, I can I respect that as well. Mm-hmm. But just for me, you know, I still love listening to Beatle records or whatever. You know, and uh, it, it still sounds good to me. And sure. I still like Miles, and I still like Coltrane. So whatever, you know, yeah. It, yeah. to me, it's it's all music. Yeah, mm-hmm. cool. You know, there's there's one kind of music, good music, <laughs> <laughs> and it's timeless. You know, yeah, it really that's is. right. It's, it's timeless. You know, your discography, you know, as a session player is a pretty extensive one. I, I was checking out your website and, and looking at all mm-hmm. the work you've yeah. done. And, you know, you've laid down some tracks for so many great artists over the years, such as, you know, like you mentioned earlier, Chuck Mangione, David Benoit, Elvis Costello and Burt Bacharach, Ringo Starr, and I think Paula Abdul, Brian Wilson, and, the, you know, Luis and Julio Iglesias, just, just to name a couple there. And uh, tell me a little about how you approach an artist's music when you you know you're first presented your, with your charts and you know what do you do to like immerse yourself mm-hmm. into what they're trying to accomplish um you know usually i don't know what i'm gonna if i'm getting a call as a session player mm-hmm. i i usually don't know what i'm going to be required to play sometimes they'll tell you what instruments you need to play right. to bring but you know they just call you because they figure you can cover it you know they don't give you a lot of information in advance so you kind of mm-hmm. get there literally and then just you know, there's the music, and then you play it. So the mm-hmm. challenge is, first of all, just a technical challenge to read it and be able to play it immediately. And then, but then the other challenge is, in a way, a psychological challenge. Try to figure out what either the arranger or the artist has in mind, right. apart from not just the notes on the page, but emotionally and musically mm-hmm. and whatever else you can bring mm-hmm. to the session. And that all happens pretty fast, you know. And yeah. and that's kind of what's fun about session work because you just um, in a way, you you in, you you have to go in without an ego, and and the job is to play as best you can in the interest of the overall project. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, from from all the sessions that you've been involved with, were there were there any that you know just in your mind stand out to you as that ones that were particularly special? I mean, they're they're always fun, right? Um, you know, one that was kind of special just because I grew up listening to the Beatles is I got to play on that Ringo album a couple tracks. Yeah. Um, and the thing is, Ringo wasn't there that day. I was working with the producer, Mark Hudson, mm-hmm. and I came in and overdubbed stuff. Is, but, it Mark, you know, is in Mark Hudson from yeah, the Hudson yeah, Brothers? A, yeah, that's, okay. the, yeah, that's Mark Hudson. Good. Okay. He's uh, you know, quite a successful producer these days. Mm-hmm. So. Uh-huh. He did several albums with Ringo. Anyway, um, as, as it turned out, I didn't know even Mark either, the contractor on the date. The, a contractor is someone that knows musicians and and calls them, you know, for a producer, for example. Uh-huh. So Mark says, I need a dobro player, which is the, what I was playing on that particular okay. date. 
And the truth is, I think they were looking for like Joe Walsh or somebody, but he probably was out of town or whatever. And so finally it got down the list and then I was available. So I got the call and showed up. But, you know, all Ringo's tracks and, and his vocals and his drum tracks and everything were already recorded. And right. so, you know, I've, I've spent li- literally hundreds of hours listening to Beatle albums. Yeah. So it was like putting on a pair of old comfortable shoes. You know? <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, here I am. This is the feel. You know? yeah. cool. It was cool so experience. fun. Yeah, and, and then I, I later got to meet Ringo very briefly um, at a party for uh, this other friend of mine, Van Dyke Parks, a composer. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, so you just, it's very weird how things can kind of <laughs> circle back around. Yeah, I, I can just imagine as to the circle of, you know, the, the, the calling lists um, for, uh, for session work is, is just very unusual. I'm, I'm particularly interested in uh, a piece of work that you did, you did for Quincy Jones's uh, Juke Joint project back in 94. Yeah. And uh, now, granted, I'm sure this is just a session, but, you know, this is one session that for me, it's just like one of those stellar projects where, where the, the best of the best are playing. And I, I saw your name on the credits. I'm like, uh, that that's pretty cool. Ex- explain a little bit a bit about um, was that eventful or was it was it not eventful? What do you recall from that session? No, it was very eventful. I, again, I came in as an overdub, uh-huh. uh, played on I think a couple tracks. Yeah, Quincy had heard me playing with um, something I forget where some some live TV orchestra or something like that, and I had a chance to play a little bit something for H. B. Barnum, another um, producer sort of songwriter guy, and um, Somehow or other, Quincy liked it, and I literally got a call out of the blue, you know, Quincy's, uh, uh, like, secretary or whatever. You know, are you available Friday or whatever day? You know, Quincy wants you to come down. I'm like, holy, you know, yeah. holy, you know what? <laughs> Was this the first time that he ever called you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and the last, as it turned out, but yeah. that's all right. But, you know, it was just like, it was kind of magical. There I am, and Qu- Quincy's very cool. Uh-huh. You know, he just... um he kind of explains v- vaguely what it is he's looking for, and then he kind of lets you do your thing. Yeah. And, and I've discovered that that's kind of the secret of being a good producer. Like, you get people that are accomplished, and you kind of bring them in, steer them in a certain direction, and then basically let them do their thing. And that's what Quincy did with me. Sure. Right. And it's the kind of thing you like, you know, he never got all enthusiastic about it. It's just like, yeah, you know, he's real mellow, real cool. And I kind of walked out going, I don't know if I'm on the album or not. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know? but then it came out and I'm on there, so it's kind of like you made the cut. You yeah, know? so it was it was that was very cool. We've talked to some other guests that have uh, done work for Quincy Jones, and they've I think they've all pretty much said the same thing that he's you know he he just lets you go and and do your thing and and uh, you know and that's why you're there is because he he wants you for what you can bring to the to the table. Exactly, and yeah. then but you know sometimes he leaves the option of he might not like it, and then he'll try right. something else. Right, sure. right. You know. you know who recently we spoke to is uh, Mark Kibble from uh, the vocal group Take Six. Yeah, and honestly, he said basically the same thing. He worked with Quincy, and Quincy came in, and and uh, they were working on some arrangements, and he just let the way Mark put it, he said he just sits you down and lets you become your best. Yeah, and uh, which is basically what you're saying. He lets you just take the piece, and and he trusts you. You know. Yeah, exactly. That's neat. That's very cool. Yeah, it was very, it was very cool. Neat. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about. We had touched on your work in composing for uh, the CBS uh, sitcom Two and a Half Men, and uh, which is in its fifth season. It's a hilarious show. It, it, it really is. I, yeah. I enjoy it. But uh, you wrote the theme. Yeah, co-wrote the theme. Co-wrote it. Is that with uh, Lee Aronson, right? Right. And he's, uh, he's one of the co-creators of the show and the other creator of the show, Chuck Lorre. Yeah. It features, um, it's kind of a doo-wop thing. It's singers. It's, it's uh, 
you know, a little group of singers and an acoustic bass and a little percussion and some finger snaps. And that's yeah. basically the theme. Wow, background, vo- you know, kind of back- doo-wop stuff with some ooze in the background. Yeah, it's it's, it's very interesting. I, you know, I listened to that on your, your CD and... Uh, the CD, though, um, yeah, the CD version on yeah, Say That is right. uh, like an expanded version of the mm-hmm. theme. In fact, you know, there's two versions of the theme you hear on TV. The shortest one is like six seconds long. Yeah. And then you sometimes see the version where the three guys are standing around a mic and kind of like tuxedos and they're singing around this old vintage mic. And that's the long version, which is, in fact, 22 seconds long. Uh-huh. I follow you. So um, for this album, it was like, boy, I, it would be great to expand this this tune out, you know, to a longer version. So I wrote a bridge and kind of expanded it out. So essentially... The version on on the Say That album is kind of like as long as it takes kind of version as opposed to the six second or 22 second. Right. Oh, and while we're talking about this, I have to mention my writing partner on the show, Dennis C. Brown. Um, Anything apart from the theme that you hear on the show, um, incidental music or when Charlie's sitting playing the piano or singing a song or any of that kind of stuff, uh, Dennis and I write that music together. So it's... It's been a very nice uh, collaboration and a partnership. Very good. Well, on the album version, it stretches out to the full five, uh, you know, four or five minutes. And, uh, yeah, yeah, we It's we really play. neat. It, it, it changes quite a bit. And, uh, you know, I'm interested as to how much experimentation, when you approach this, uh, for instance, this, this sitcom and you have a theme, uh, how do you approach it? I mean, granted, you had uh, Lee, you know, to work with, but uh, explain a little bit your approaches to writing for a, a sitcom as opposed to your own solo piece. You follow me? Yeah, I mean, in this case, Lee Aronson, who's a longtime friend of mine, called up and said, you know, we kind of have this show, and, and he s- described us a little idea over the phone. He, well, first of all, he kind of told me what the show was about. You know, said that Charlie Sheen lived in Malibu on this in this beach house, and he kind of has a jingle rider, plays piano, and his brother comes to live with him, and his brother has a nephew. He to- kind of told me the whole sort of, uh, you know, concept of the show, and then a vague notion of, what the theme might be like, you know. And then I just kind of thought about that for a while, and I sat down and wrote this thing. And Lee came over, and um, we kind of whittled it down to the elements. Mm -hmm. And then, um, but, you know, it actually, all the men, 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 manly men, all that stuff, that was all there. That was in the original version. Okay. And then he kind of submitted it to the, you know, uh, other co-creator, Chuck Lorre, and Chuck was trying various things, you know, over some months, but in the end, happily, he kept coming back to this theme, <laughs> and then Chuck kind of re- reimagined it strictly as a as a doo-wop kind of piece, in a way, with the acoustic bass, and so then he became a collaborator, and, and he uh, added a little something to it, so it, it kind of evolved, but the initial concept was simply hearing about what the show is, and then right. trying to come up with something that, you know, might suit it. Right. It just is so fitting. It's very simple, and I think it, uh, it works really neat. It's a different a different approach. Uh, I, I don't hear many uh, you know theme songs like that. Uh, in fact, my, in my opinion, you know, th- when it comes down to theme songs for entertainment and television shows, especially, it, they just don't have the zip like they used to back. Like you know, uh, you know, back in the sixties and seventies, you know, when I Dream of Genie used to come on. Yeah, you I knew. Mean, yeah, that was a tune. You know, yeah. When you I hear agree. something back then, I mean. Uh, it, it was a different type of effort given to the musical value as to in relationship to the show. Wouldn't you agree or not? I absolutely agree. Yeah. And the other thing is they let you have a lot more time in those days. Like I think some of those themes are almost a minute long. Yeah, yeah it's true. So, um, so now you really have to hone in on just you know what the elements are 
And that makes it, in a way, a lot harder yeah. to come up with something that c- people can remember and, you know, that, that becomes, in a way, quote-unquote, important. You yeah, know? I mean, but, having six seconds, I mean, six, seven seconds to create uh, the, the musical feel and support that that a show needs as you go into it, I mean, that's that must be... <laughs> I don't even know how you do that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually seems quite daunting. <laughs> yeah, it does. It. it really does. Yeah, I'll never be able to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Have you written other theme shows other than than that or not? Yeah, I actually had um, with again with my friend Lee Aronson. Yeah, this was probably oh, it might be almost ten years ago now. Um, he had another show on CBS called Life and Stuff, mm-hmm. which starred Pam Dauber and this comedian named Rick Reynolds. Okay. And he, again, Lee called up and told me what the show was about. And he goes, why don't you pitch a theme? And I'm like, okay, you know. So I, I, I kind of wrote something and demoed it up and took it down to the office. And one thing led to another, and it ended up surviving. And, but, and it got on the air, but the show only lasted, like, I think four episodes before oh. the network pulled the plug. So right. That's why I, I say I'm quite lucky to be involved with Two and a Half Men, because the odds are just unbelievably long, first of all, of any show even getting picked up. You know, right. like yeah. they make so many pilots and they, the number of pilots that actually get on the air is, you know, it's statistically it's, almost none. And then to have it be a hit with any yeah. longevity is, you know, it's just incredible. Well, five years these days, it's an eternity on TV, isn't it? It is. Absolutely. You yeah. know, it's, it's not uh, not the way it was a long, long time ago. In fact, you know, surprisingly, some of the shows of even the 60s and 70s, you know, they have so much impact. You remember them, but you look back and you know what? Sometimes there are only two seasons. I know. It really is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. It's surprising. You thought, hey, as a kid, you know, it just stuck in my mind and that thing, that show was on forever. Well, mm-hmm. no, it was only on for one year, you know? Yeah. Uh, like Green Hornet, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> I remember those, <laughs> and I'm like, I know it dates me too, but anyway, maybe you saw it. I mean, too. I think Batman was only on two seasons, if I'm not mistaken. That's true. It wasn't on the air very long at all. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. But everyone, you know, well, everyone of a certain age remembers that Batman theme by Neil Hefty. So. Yeah. Well, hey, guys, let's uh, take a quick break and check out a sample of the uh, song we've been talking about here, the, the theme from Two and a Half Men. And this particular version is off of the album Say That, and it's from our guest today, Grant Geisman. Thank you. 
And that was a quick sample of the theme from the TV show, Two and a Half Men, which was uh, co-composed and created by our guest today, Grant Geisman. Um, I'd like to get back to your jazz approach on Say That. Uh, okay. You know, tracks such as uh, Wes is More, Below the Radar, and What's a Story. You know, they, they do re- really deliver that uh, Wes Montgomery feel, Jimmy Smith feel that you uh, you spoke about just a little while ago. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and we talk about, you know, the drivers of, of delivering that legendary sound. In, in the reviews that I'm reading, uh, it's almost like a breath of fresh air from the the critics out there that are saying it's a nice – piece of music that people just aren't going back to that genre anymore. Is that correct? Well, I mean, some people are. You yeah. know, there's some great players. Joey DeFrancesca plays incredible B3 organ. And, yeah. You know, I, I do think some people are interested in that. But maybe, you know, happily, I'm just lucky that this particular amalgam here, you know, truthfully, I, it's probably gotten the best reviews of just about anything I've ever done. Absolutely. So yeah. I was so enormously uh, happy about that. And... You know, part of it, I kind of stuck my neck out in a certain way because I, I was very vocal in saying that the whole smooth jazz thing is Muzak. And and most people will go, well, yeah, what's the big news there? I mean, yeah. but it's kind of big news for like a musician that had, you know, a reasonable amount of success early on in that format yeah. to come out and just say, you know what, this is really wrong now. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's not music, it's it's Muzak and, you right. know. Not doing it, and you know, I, I think I think I'm lucky in the sense that I have kind of, you know, other things that to fall back on. I do a little session work. I have my TV show. So in a way, some people, even though privately, I've, I've had many conversations with a lot of players that are really good players, but they're kind of stuck in that format, the whole wave format, because they have to be. You know, they they mm-hmm. they have to make their living a certain way. There's a certain amount of live concerts they have to do and so actually they can't come out and mm-hmm. say this stuff even though they might want to yeah exactly it's mm-hmm. a bread and butter you know who uh you know who has a very similar parallel uh, uh viewpoint uh, like yourself is jeff lorber who we spoke to in the past too yeah jeff uh, you know he started out you know gee whiz you know they called he his first band was called the jeff lorber fusion although he didn't invent it he he, he was in that genre and doing his thing and all of a sudden he says i sort of got absorbed into this thing called smooth jazz and I'm like, what is, you know, he, he was saying, what is smooth jazz? I, he hates the nomer, you know, that, that, yeah, that I, whole genre. It's, it's really insignificant. And he says, I'm a, I'm a jazz pianist. And, uh, and so I think there, there must be an awful lot of musicians, great musicians out there that have sort of fallen into the absorption factor, you know, yeah. of uh, when it's not, it was not deliberate by any means. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, some players are deliberately went into there or, you know, in other words, I don't want to name any names, but there yeah. are some players that actually can't play anything. That's the, in other words, they're playing at their level for that music. Yes, I agree. And um, you know, so fair enough. If that's the way they hear music and that's where their skills are and they're successful, go for it. You know, I think if anybody can make a musician, uh, any musician can make a living playing music any way they can. Right on, because you know, it, it's hard to make a living playing just music. So if you can do it any way you can, go for it. Yeah, but yep. for me, you know, I wanted to be able to stretch out a little more and really play. Yeah, um, let's talk a little bit about the the quintet, the, some of the musicians that were on the, your new album. Yeah, and uh, let's let's start off with the amazing Jim Cox. Yeah, he's uh, something. Tell us a little bit about uh, his contribution. I mean, he's he's got some incredible performances on uh, on Say That. Yeah, he sounds amazing. He he played a lot of the B three stuff. Yeah. Um, first of all, Jim Cox is one of these guys that's scary good because he can literally 
play in any style, any genre. Um, you know, he actually, he actually was involved in the, some of the Ringo Starr albums. He's played mm. um, on records and live with people like Mark Knopfler of the Dire Straits. Yeah. He plays with Lyle Lovett. Yeah. Um, and then he can come in and just burn jazz B3 organ. So, in other words, he's the kind of guy that can literally come in and own whatever genre he's being required to play in and just play it like, you know, this is the only thing he's ever played. Yeah. So that I mean, this guy is scarily talented and just so so gifted as a player. Yeah, let's talk about uh, Ray Brinker. Ray Brinker is I've played with Ray for quite a long time. He he's part of uh, Tierney Sutton's band, the the great jazz uh-huh. singer Tierney Sutton. Yeah. Um, but years ago, he was on the road with Maynard Ferguson, kind of when he first got out of college, and he's he's just a great player, very fiery, you know, great groove. And um, I kind of co-opted. Uh, Trey and and uh, I mean Ray Brinker and Trey Henry, who's the the acoustic bass player mm-hmm. that plays on Say That. Right. They've been involved a lot with Tierney, and those guys play together so well, you know, that it was kind of a no brainer just to uh, to pick both of them up and, and have them come play on my thing. Yeah. And then you also had uh, Tom Rainier and, and Russ Ferrante on on piano and Rhodes. Yeah. Well, Russ is kind of an old friend of mine. We actually did some playing up in San Jose where I grew up and where he also grew up uh-huh. before either of us, you know, ever separately came down to Los Angeles. You know, we actually uh, were kind of both in college, you know, first couple of years of college. So I, I knew Russ way back when. And then we, um, you know, kind of both came down here and he got involved in the Yellow Jackets and I did whatever I was doing. And when um, I was putting Say That together, I, I actually always wanted to to have Russ, you know, come and play something. And I had this one ballad called Yes or No, and I thought, you know, Russ would be the great greatest person I could think of to come play this. Yeah. So I just called him up and I go, hey, well, you know, would you consider coming to play? And he goes, yeah, I'd love to. And he just sounds incredible. Just That's great. What a beautiful touch and incredible voicings on the piano and mm-hmm. just what a player. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's incredible. It's always the right uh, right part at the for what's required, you know? Exactly. So sensitive. Um, yeah. Brian Scanlon. Brian Scanlon is a sax player. Um, I've done a lot of playing with Brian in, in Gordon Goodwin's Big Fat Band. Mm-hmm. Brian plays in that big band. And I've, I've done a lot of playing in that band, although I haven't been doing it lately because I can't. They're starting to do a lot more traveling, and I just really can't do it these days. But Brian is a. I just. Um, he's got a great kind of dark. He went to Eastman School of Music, so he's got that kind of New York attitude, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that kind of great angular kind of dark sound uh-huh. perfect and very very anti-smooth jazz and i thought you know brian <laughs> scanlon is the perfect guy to come and help me make this statement yeah so and then you mentioned tom Rainier earlier and tom is a yeah. guy uh, i've done a lot of stuff over the years with and in fact he played on my very first album good stuff you know way okay. back when so. yeah she was yeah solid players you know i'm very impressed with the uh, compilation of players and and you're right i think it's it very much makes sense uh with that last statement that you made that it was these guys really supported the statement you were trying to make you know yeah they were everybody was really on board yeah musically mm-hmm. you know and musically and every other way really that's neat yeah. um i'm very partial to really two tracks that are sort of different one of them's called bossa and the other one is siete which of course in spanish is, is seven and it's yeah. actually written in seven exactly um but uh, they add a real nice latin bossa flavor to the project and especially on bossa you fe- you actually feature I, I believe Tierney sutton uh does some vocals with uh in unison with brian sachs correct 
Yeah, and also with my guitar. Yeah, that's really so, neat. And she's kind of singing like wordless vocals like, um, you know, Jewel Beam used to have. Uh, sure, I can't th- yeah. I can't think of her name now. I'm blank on uh, what yeah. was the singer that used to work with uh, on the Stan Getz stuff? Right. Um, 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 darn, I, anyway. It'll come to us at 3 ex- in the morning. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, um, she's kind of doing this wordless, you know, kind of uh, unison singing with the melody. And it, mm-hmm. she just sounded wonderful on that. It, it was. It was a very nice touch. Very. At one time, I, you know, it's, it's sort of, um, it reminded me of, and f- please forgive me for comparing you to another guitarist, but I'm, I'm equally a, of a fan of uh, a guitarist named Earl Klug. Oh, yeah. Um, and there was a part of the bossa that just sounded like Earl. I'm like, oh, man, was he on this album, too? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> so great. I sort of backed away. But uh, anyway, those those two were really nice, and Tierney did a very nice job with that. Yeah, she really did. And the Siete tune is fun, because like you say, it is in seven. Yeah. And um, Tom Rainier plays like a, a real Fender Rhodes uh, piano. A you real know, one. <laughs> a, it's, you know, a real, like a big heavy one you used to have to carry up the yeah. stairs and all that. <laughs> I had a, su- a suitcase one time, yeah. Yeah, and they sound, there's nothing like it. I mean, they right. try to synthesize them, and, and, but the truth is, there's nothing like a real one. Yeah. While we're on the uh, topic of the song Bossa, let's pause for a quick moment and listen to a short sample from our guest today, Grant Geisman. That was a quick sample of the song Bossa from today's guest, Grant Geisman. Eddie and I are always curious about our guests and their first experience with with music and how they started playing. And and I just wondered how old were you when you first started learning music and and what instruments did you pick up when you first started playing? Well, I actually took a little piano before I picked up the guitar. Um, And I was doing okay. And it's this funny little story, which is kind of interesting. I was, you know, doing pretty good for a beginner, and so the teacher, this woman in my neighborhood, you know, she goes, well, let's see if you can play this 
whatever tune it was, Mary Had a Little Lamb or something, without the music. So she took the music away, and I, I could play it without the music. And mm-hmm. then, So I thought I was going to be rewarded for this, and she goes, well, you're not reading the music, you're just playing by ear. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so, you know, and then after that, it's like, well, then, you know what, I, I think I'm done here, you know. <laughs> I've learned what I can take from you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, you know, uh, this was just wrong, because it, it seems idiotic. So then, yeah. you know, and then not too long after that, I... You know, heard the Beatles and started badgering my parents for a, a guitar. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I've, I was probably not, just about 12, maybe not quite 12 when I, when I started playing the guitar. Mm-hmm. And then I later actually studied the piano a bit. So, um, but, you know, I, I might have ended up a piano player if I had a different teacher because I was doing good. And the truth is, I, I just memorized this stupid little song. But in her, in her mind, if you could play anything without the music, that was a bad thing. Right. Hmm. So... Interesting. Not, not cool. <laughs> not cool at all. You just mentioned your parents a minute ago, and, and uh, it, it, did you grow up in, a, in like a musical household? I mean, were any of your family members or your parents uh, musicians themselves? Well, yeah, it kind of skipped a generation. Um, my father was a drummer actually before World War II, and then he after the war he stopped playing and went on to other things. Uh-huh. But then my grandfather on my mother's side and my grandmother also on my mother's side. Uh, my grandfather played banjo, and my grandmother played like kind of ragtime piano when she was younger. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was always kind of musical in a way. And, and as soon as I started learning how to play guitar, then my grandfather was like, "Oh well, I have this banjo, and let's get <laughs> together, you know, after Sunday dinners, and we'll, you know, we'll play uh, old songs like Bye Bye Blackbird and stuff sure. like that." Mm-hmm. So we used to, we did that for years, and. Um, the truth is, he wasn't a great banjo player, but he loved it so much. Yeah, you know, he just had a absolute passion for music, and a lot of that rub- rubbed off on me. So I-, I think that's where I get a lot of my passion for music. Yeah, I, I also noticed in uh, looking at your discography that you know you're credited with uh, with uh, some banjo parts, and uh, you know, for some artists. And uh, I was yeah. going to ask you, how much banjo do you play? Well, I mean. I'm not supposed to admit this, but I play what they now call Tedesco tuning, which okay. is uh, Tommy Tedesco was this famous uh, session player that was very busy in the 60s and 70s, real character. He could play any instrument, but every instrument was tuned like the top three or four strings of a guitar. Uh-huh. <laughs> really? So Yeah, yeah. so that's yeah. what I do. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cheating, but you have to kind of know how the instruments are supposed to sound and what they're, you know, you know how they're supposed to be played. Right. But um, it's kind of like, yeah, I, I use Tedesco tuning. <laughs> you know, so so far throughout the interview, you know, we've we've talked about some of the people that you listened to growing up, like Beatles and <clears throat> excuse me, Eric Clapton, and I think you mentioned, you know, the blues side more, West Montgomery and BB King and, and some of those others. But yeah, were there any other musicians that that caught your attention and and maybe have uh, been a, a great influence in the way you play? Or well, those- yeah, I mean, you know, on the guitar side, I, I used to love Kenny Burrell, for example. Uh huh. Um, let's see, Howard Roberts, I love the way he played. Mm-hmm. Barney Kessel, I, um, I actually went and took a seminar with Barney around 1972. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, a, a lot of different people. Johnny Smith, back in the old days. I studied, um, when I was about a senior in college for a couple of years with this guitar player named Jerry Hahn, who was, uh, he played with John Handy and he did some solo albums, very interesting guitar player very uh, you know kind of avant-garde for the time a great guy he turned me on to so many things uh, about the guitar and and not only just the guitar you know people he actually turned me on to um you know miles and coltrane and ornette coleman and just all this stuff that i really had never you know experienced before right. so jerry Hahn was extremely uh, 
you know, influential in my development as well. Mm-hmm. Speaking of guitars, what do you play as, as some of your primary guitars, and in, 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 do you have any endorsements? I never went for the endorsement uh-huh. thing, actually. I don't know. I never felt comfortable doing it right. somehow. Um, I actually, I have a lot of different instruments, and they're all, you know, they all sound different, and they're mm-hmm. all for different purposes. Um, mm-hmm. The main guitar I played on the Say That album was a, um, a Gibson 335. Okay. Back in the old days when I was with Chuck Mangione, I, I played my Gibson L5. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow these days the 335 is easier to play for me. So Explain that a little bit for, you know. Well, it's a little smaller. You know, the, it's not as thick of a body, and the neck is a little bit wider. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just... For what I think it's actually all the years of playing in the studio with lighter strings and having to play a little, you know, kind of hybrid stuff, rock or, or whatever. Yeah. It just feels a little more comfortable to not go all the way now back to the L5. That's so I'm kind of in the middle. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it sounds it sounds nice. I mean, it's still got a really warm, jazzy kind of tone. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Grant, if, if anyone has followed your career, they know that... Uh, one of your most memorable musical uh, footprints, you know, happened back in '75, and you mentioned uh, uh, working with Chuck Mangione, and uh, and I want to get back to you know your legendary solo on "Feels So Good." Yeah, uh, you probably know that this track is considered. I, I've read that this is considered one of the most memorable tracks that anyone uh, listening to music can, can really uh, remember, and I. Uh, I read that somewhere, and I, I think it's uh, it's true. Ex- explain uh, how you started, uh, um, you know, hooking up with Chuck Mangione. Well, it, it wasn't seventy five; it was a little later than that. Was it maybe any older than I already am. Yeah, okay, it's like seventy eight, uh, I believe. Actually, I was, you know, I I had come down to Los Angeles around seventy three to, um, truthfully, to go to college, but mainly to get closer to the L A. studio scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I had heard records by Tom Scott and. You know Tom Scott and the L.A. Express, sure. and I, I heard these great musicians like John Guerin on drums, and it was just like, man, these guys are playing, and and even early uh, Larry Carlton playing on the first uh, L.A. Express album. Yeah, and I just admired the way Larry played, real bluesy, simple. You uh-huh. know, I I liked his approach for session work. You, you know how how he played in the studio, and it was very different sounding. And I was like, you know what, I got to get down there. <laughs> yeah. So um, so I moved down to to Los Angeles. You know sort of towards the end of 73 and into 74. And I, I was going to college, uh, Cal State Northridge, mm-hmm. and playing in little bands, rehearsal bands, just whatever I could do, you know. And, you know, doing that, you meet people. So I w- had played in several bands with a trombone player named Bill Reichenbach, who's actually a phenomenal jazz yeah, trombone absolutely. player. Um, and Bill had gone to Eastman School of Music and, and knew Chuck, played under Chuck in his uh, ensemble at college. And Chuck was kind of looking for a guitar player at that time, and he called Bill Reichenbach, and Reichenbach said, well, you know, I know this this kind of new guy, Grant Geisman, you should call him. So out of the blue, I got this call from Chuck Mangione to do uh, a couple-night gig at the Santa Monica Civic, or maybe mm-hmm. it was one night, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just with a little his little orchestra thing and Chuck. And, and um, you know, I played it, and he liked what I did, and he kind of called a meeting with me and just asked me what I wanted to do, and... You know, he was thinking of you know adding me to the band, and he goes, "Well, would you consider doing that this little tour, like a week tour up to the Pacific Northwest, just mm-hmm. with my quartet? You know, let's try it out." And I'm like, "Yeah, let's you know, let's do it." Pretty cool. So one thing led to another, and he eventually asked me to join the band. And um, so then we players, you know, various players left right around that time, and so um, 
it was Chris Vidala. He was already in the band playing mm-hmm. woodwinds. And then yeah. it was me and Chuck. And then we started looking for a bass player and a drummer. And uh, we, we had some auditions here in L.A., and I recommended a bass player I knew called Charles Meeks. Yeah. And he recommended his friend named James Bradley Jr., a drummer. Mm-hmm. And um, that became the core band. And uh, the first album we did was this album, Feels So Good. Yeah. And we recorded it in 77, I think around the summer of 77. Right. And by the early part of 78, it became this huge radio, you know, AM radio hit. Absolutely. Right. And the, it was an edited version. In fact, the long version of "Feel So Good" on the album, I think, is about nine minutes long. Yeah, you know. So for this, for to get on the radio, they edited it down to whatever two minutes and th- or two or three minutes, whatever it was. Yeah, just for airtime. Yeah. And what they did is, uh, you know, they they cut from the first part of me playing the melody to the second half of my guitar solo, and so it, you know. That became the thing that everyone heard on the radio. Absolutely, right. very lucky. You know? Well, speaking of that uh, guitar solo, um, you know how much of how much of it was charted. I mean, did you improvise at all, or was it pretty much you know note for note? Well, you know both. Here's the thing: we we kind of went in the studio for two or three days and did demos of the material that would eventually became the stuff on Feel So Good. Uh-huh. Just literally like. This tune kind of goes like this, you know, you try this, you try that, just very experimental. Right. But pretty good already, you know. It, it was raw around the edges, but, you know, the the diamond was already there. And right. so then after those three days, we kind of went on the road for two or three weeks, and we all had these little cassettes of these demos, and we just played them over and over. And we all got so married to what we had played on the demos, like improvised, in a, you know, on the demos, that most of us just kind of relearned the solos we played on the demos and then fixed stuff up that we didn't like so mm. so the feel so good solo in its final form you know it actually most of it was improvised and then i just kind of fixed up stuff so it's kind of like it's a combination of improvisation and composition in a way yeah, yeah. you know so. i was i was thinking about that time period the late 70s and it, to me that was such a unique period for music i mean it it seemed as though you know popular music was was very positive you know lyrics were really upbeat yeah you know disco was was becoming huge and and uh you know and, and that style you know disco was infused in so much of of what we were listening to right. and, yeah and uh you know feel so good was was really in my mind sort of a, a fusion of a lot of those elements you know including obviously jazz but you know it's just maybe a light touch of of, of disco if, if you can imagine that and, and yeah there's that little bass line that charles yeah. meeks came up that little don't it don't it don't it you know thing yeah, that yeah. thing in the middle and right. yeah i mean it's yeah but yet the the melody was kind of a straightforward pop in a way you know but being an instrumental it really kind of bucked the trend in that regard in that you know, especially how wildly <laughs> successful that song was. Don't you agree? Sure, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the truth is, um, the head, one of the head honchos at the record company, when Chuck turned in the, the album, he goes, you know, it's a really nice album, but I don't hear a hit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but, you know, then another guy at the label, um, I think it was Barry Corkin, who was like an A&R guy, he figured out how to edit Feel So Good into that single, yeah. you know. He goes, you know, if you if you cut here and cut here and do this and do that, we can get it down and and uh, to a radio friendly time and, and um, you know and then amazingly it was a hit. It, it's right. you know, but we never set out to make a hit like that. We just Chuck brought in these songs and we played them as best we could and kind of put our little spin on what we thought. And it was a very group project. It was kind of like this gestalt in a way. Right. Yeah. Like Chuck brought the tunes in, but there was very loose. You know, he didn't. There was. It, he didn't say, you do this, you do that, and you do that. It was like, this is kind of how this goes, you know, what do you think? And mm-hmm. then it was, we all just kind of like, well, you know, 
here's what we think. And then it was, again, it was like a big gestalt. Everybody just tossing ideas into the pot. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, you know, in that sense, it was a very organic project. And like mm-hmm. I say, it was, you know, nobody ever intended to make a hit like that. Right. You know, I, obviously you were with uh, Chuck for quite a while. How, how extensively did you tour with him? Oh, well, it was, you know, the, that time, because then Feel So Good exploded. So, right. you know, then, you know, because when I first started with him, we were driving around in this little funky brown station wagon, you know, <laughs> from gig to gig. I think, I think it was his station wagon. So he'd throw the, the guitars and the drums and whatever in the back, and then we'd kind of all crowd in this thing, and then we'd drive to Syracuse or whatever. You know, it was, you know, he was known and, and kind of successful, but it was, you know, he, it was a struggle. Mm-hmm. And... um so we kind of went from that to then once feels so good hit you know to first class accommodations and you know this amazing kind of leap. So had to, um, had to be a cool transformation just to watch all that happen. It was incredible. Yeah. It was you know it was kind of a magical time. Truthfully, it probably happened all so fast. Also, yeah, it seemed very fast. Yeah. yeah. You know, just a couple of days ago, I mean, I, I appreciate you doing one thing on your website um, is you actually have a PDF that's posted there. I downloaded that P- PDF of. Um, of your guitar solo, I yeah, feel so good. Exactly, because you know people would email me. Well, in, you know, years ago they would write me letters or stop me on the street, you know, and uh, say, you know, how do you do this and how do you do that? And so finally, I just thought, <laughs> you know, I, I need to just put this up on the internet and if people want it they can find it <laughs> well I, I actually put uh, I wanted to prove it to my daughter that it was uh, the actual one and uh, so I put it in your vinyl my, my vinyl record of course uh, oh cool that I still have a neat master recording of that and and I put it on my Bang & Olufsen turntable which I always use it probably sounds like a million bucks it does man yeah. uh, and I'm glad to hear you say that it sounds yeah. better than a CD uh, at Jesus Project and I, I follow the music and all the way to and you know what doggone it it is the solo there it is no it is <laughs> And I wrote that out. I wrote that out like right after we did it, so uh-huh. I didn't forget it. You know, so that's the real deal. <laughs> <laughs> My next question was going to be: Did you also work on Children of Sanchez? Yeah. Did you? Yeah. And that was a very. Could you explain the that that album happens to be my wife's one of my wife's favorite albums, all time albums, and she loves listening to it. Explain the the thought behind that, the concept of of Children of Sanchez. Well, it's it's a actually it was a score for a film. But the truth is, the album itself um, <laughs> became much more important than the film because the film had a very limited release. It truthfully wasn't very good, even though it had some good people. Anthony Quinn starred in it, mm-hmm. and um, it just was not a good movie. But you know, the music itself stood up on its own mm-hmm. so it well. It did that. Uh, you know, most people don't even know that there ever was a movie. <laughs> so <laughs> you know. Oddly enough, I, I did some, I've done some stuff over the years again with Chuck, you know, doing some traveling. And, you know, I haven't been able to do too much lately since I've had the show. But I actually, about a month ago, not to digress, I went and subbed on a gig uh, for one night in, in Florida. And it was just so great to play the music and, and see Chuck again. And, but bet. the point is, you know, I've, I've done some stuff over the years. And we took a trip to Poland to play at this uh, film and arts festival and what we found out, like when we played Children of Sanchez, like all hell broke loose. Like the whole play, people were on their feet cheering and weeping. Wow. And it's, it's wow. like, what's going on? <laughs> well, we found out somehow or other, this theme from Children of Sanchez became mm-hmm. like, you know, like a, a freedom anthem to them in a way. Really? They, yeah, it was, you know, uh, quite emotional, a very political statement, you know, and, and we, we had no idea. And it was just like, you almost couldn't even take it in. You know, it, it was like the, the str- one of the strangest and most amazing 
things I've ever experienced. You know that that uh, that piece of work. Um, I can see how how that can become. Uh, it there's certain portions of that of that uh, that piece that actually have a very revolutionary sound. You know when like uh, that that part that goes. You know it just sounds so man. It's it's, it's, it's so very li- powerful. It's, it's very a very emotional, very powerful. Yeah, very liberating piece of music. And it uh, is. That's yeah. uh, and that, that's just a very cool piece. You know. And there, you know, the lyric goes along with it as well. It, you know, it's quite an emotional lyric, and mm-hmm. so um, you know, people remember that quite a bit. Obviously, didn't you actually? I mean, on the lyric itself, I mean, who was it that actually did the vocals? Was it actually Chuck or another no, no, member no. of the it, band? It's a singer named Don Potter who uh. worked with Chuck. Um, you know, early on, like the Friends and Love concerts, and, uh, yeah. and he's a guitarist, early, right? Yeah, he's a guitarist yeah, singer. Okay. Yeah, very, very um, emotional voice. You know, very good. Very nice. Grant, tell us a little bit about uh, outside of the show you're working on, Two and a Half Men. What other projects uh, are you involved in, if any? Well, I mean, just weird stuff. I've, I've helped. There's a composer I mentioned earlier, Van Dyke Parks, and I've kind of done a lot of session work for him, and I've even helped him. Um, there's this HBO series called Harold and the Purple Crayon. My son knows that well. Oh, good. <laughs> Van Dyke uh, wrote all these really charming songs, and... Um, and then I, I kind of co-produced them, the final versions with Van Dyke, and uh-huh. he sang the lead vocals, and I, you know, chief cook and bottle washer, really. I played all the guitar stuff and any other kind of string instruments, banjo, weird, you know, whatever stuff, you know, program stuff, and I even sang all the background vocals. Really? So, really? Yeah. So That's I cool. helped Van Dyke, uh, you know, produce those tracks. So we're trying to actually get that released on a CD, because... Um, it's a lot of parents, you know, like you, actually love that music. So yeah, yeah. that's a great little show. It is. It's very cute. And, and like I the, said, who is the actress that actually came up with the concept? I, I can't remember who that was. Was it? Um, there's well, an act- Sh- Sharon Stone does the voiceover, but Harold that's and the right. Purple Crayon is based on this um, series of children's books that were started, I think, in the 40s and 50s uh-huh. by this illustrator named um, Oh darn. Crockett Johnson. There okay. it is. Crockett Johnson. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was always the same story. You know, Harold would have this crayon and he'd kind of draw these adventures and get himself out of whatever jams he was in with his, right. by drawing himself out. Right. I knew Sharon Stone was involved somehow. I, I didn't know if, yeah. Yeah, she's like the narrator. Okay, very cool. Yeah. Hey, uh, Grant, we want to thank you very much for, for being with us and taking some time to, to talk to us. I think uh, this is going to be a wonderful uh, uh, chat for our audience, and uh, we've learned quite a bit. Well, thanks, Eddie and Rick. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you taking this much time and <laughs> letting me kind of spout off like this. <laughs> oh, no, this <laughs> is wonderful. It. Thanks again for joining us, and uh, hopefully maybe somewhere down the road we can catch up with you again. Absolutely. I'd love to. All right. All right. Take care. Bye. Special thanks to Grant Geisman for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new episode of Inside Music Cast every other week. Be sure to check out InsideMusicCast.com for continuing updates, including our People's Forum, where you can chat about all things music with Inside Music Cast listeners from around the world. That's InsideMusicCast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. 